Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Well, on this last Sunday of the year, as we set apart the day to reflect on the past year and look ahead, chances are, right now, with or without the church, you've already been engaging in some of that, haven't you? You've been thinking about what 2008 was like. For some of you, that leaves a smile, and for some of you, that leaves a frown. I know that this year, whatever it's been, has not been a year that's easy to ignore. It's a year that left a mark one way or the other. And so maybe on your own already, you're in this sort of reflective and renewing kind of mode. And I want to join in that with you. And together as a whole church, we'd like to do that. We'd like to do a little looking back and a little looking forward. But this time guided not so much like by a menu type thing where we go, how about your spiritual life? How about your physical life, your family life, your money? I don't want to go through all those areas and do an audit and form some resolutions. But rather what I'd like to do this morning is give you one big idea, a big challenge that I believe will guide and energize all of your personal reflection and all of our corporate reflection as a church. Does that make sense? Guys in the back, if you flash the slide up, the title of the message is Giving Jesus the First Place, really in everything. And that comes from Colossians 1.18. That little ribbon reminds us that only one person gets first place. I've seen this new trend in schools where they can only mark off five red marks on a kid's assignment in case you lower their self-esteem. Everyone in the race gets a ribbon. I think it's all garbage. Okay? When you run a race, only one person finishes first. That's the way it is. That's the way it should be. You can't have two, two first places any more than you can legally have two wives, right? The, the truth of it is, and no guys like would want to, one wife is enough, isn't it, brothers? I mean, that person wants so much of us that it's impossible to think you can give equally of your heart to two different people. The truth is, there can only be one. I won't say the word. Well, Highlander, I had to say it. <laughs> there can only be one first place in your life. And the real question I have for you is, honestly, and I really mean this, honest to God, who's got that first place in your life? You know, I'm, I'm 41 years old now. I've been walking with Jesus since 1984. And I can tell you this, it is incredibly easy to say that God has first place. I've been saying it. 24 years. I don't know that I could say it honestly for 24 years, but I've been saying it like it's my motto. 24 years. Jesus is supposed to have first place. My family is supposed to have a close second, and so on and so forth. But when I actually look at my life, it sometimes really indicts me, and it exposes me for the liar that I, that I contend to be. And I wonder about you, because I'm not really interested in giving you a really good rah-rah speech that any Christian should hear, and then we'll all walk out feeling a little guilty and a little inspired. That would be such a boring waste of time this morning. What I am interested in doing is giving you one great challenge from the Word of God that will leave you at home thinking as you reflect and renew, where am I really in my life? What has become dislodged, and what needs to change if 2009 is going to be a year where God's presence is felt, where things make sense, where stuff really starts to come together and work. Where I feel alive, not just living, but alive. Colossians 1.18 says this. I really love this verse. Um, 
this verse recently invaded my mind when I was doing a little thing called Passport to Purity with my son Noah. It's a uh, coming of age, entering adolescence kind of thing. And this was the verse around which the entire curriculum was built. And right there I knew it was a good curriculum because this is the right place for a young man or woman to begin thinking about maturity and adulthood. Here's what it says. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. I want to walk through that passage in some detail and bring out some of the key elements in it to, to give us different facets of this one big idea, which is that Jesus ought to be first in the life of the Christian and in the life of the church. That, it just almost makes me feel like an idiot saying, because it's so obvious, but this is a thing that we most readily forget. The first thing I see in there is that Jesus is the head of the body, and in case we miss the point, not the body, but the church. And so here's what Paul's doing. He's drawing a comparison between the church of Jesus Christ and the human body. Now let me tell you something. I've got in my collection, my personal library, about 150 books on the topic of the church. There is no shortage of new books coming out every year. It's almost like after a while you just get sick of it. There are so many different facets of the church, strategies, approaches, multi-site, emergent, postmodern, resurgent, missional, seeker-sensitive, mega-church, small-church, house-church, cell-church. I mean, everybody's trying to find some new spin on this old thing. And after a while, you get a little overwhelmed. Because something that began so simply and so organically has become this big institution with a million different practical strategies. I think that's one of the ways in which the business mindset of American culture has poisoned and overcomplicated what is a beautifully simple thing. And so Paul dispels a lot of that stuff by giving us this piercing insight when he says, the church of God is very comparable to a human body. And that tells us a couple important things. One is that it's organic and living. The church isn't an institution. Ultimately, it is a living, interconnected web of people, isn't it? It's just like, like any other thing you could call an institution or organization. It's the same thing is true. L- let me take, for example, the British Empire. It's just the first human institution that came to my mind when I was writing in the sermon. So let's, let's roll with it. The British Empire, at one point in the world's history, was an empire over which the sun never set. And that was a very common saying. The sun never sets on the British Empire, which means they had conquered nations all over the globe so that wherever it was daylight, there was British sovereign soil. Okay? That's a pretty impressive feat. No other empire formally has ever accomplished what the Brits did. They had an empire that spanned the globe. You might think of the British Empire as this big, faceless movement, this organization that would never, ever go away. And for many, many years, that's what people believed. But at the end of the day, even something as vast as the British Empire boiled down to the collective sum of hundreds and thousands and even millions of localized individual acts of courage, domination, innovation, cruelty, whatever it took, the entire empire was held together and moved forward by the collective actions and the lives of millions of people. And when their collective will failed, or when it was trumped by another collective will of people, 
that was even more fierce, more motivated, that movement simply got pushed aside and faded. The truth is most people don't realize there's no such thing as the United States of America, per se. There is just us Americans. Other than that, it's just a big hunk of land with some invisible and, in a few cases, some physical barriers that block off our little piece of land from the other. It's kind of like the lanes painted on a road. Do you realize you're driving 70 miles an hour on a road and the only thing keeping you from crashing are strips of rubberized paint on the ground? Do you know how terrifying a reality that is? There is no physical barrier. There is just, on a road, a bunch of people agreeing to obey the rules and not crash into each other. And if you think about that, that's frightening. But that's reality. You know, every time we talk about the church, we're really not talking about some faceless institution. And a lot of people approach me to give creative, you know, constructive insights about the church, but they say things like this. You know what the church ought to do? You know what your church should do? Do you know what Harvest ought to do? I said, I'm not really sure how to hear that. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Because sometimes the suggestion sounds like this. Harvest needs to become more evangelistic. Hot diggity, I agree. Harvest, if anything, needs to be a lot more evangelism-minded. But what on earth does that even mean? How does an institution or a logo or a building become more evangelistic? The truth is, when we speak of the church, we're talking about a living organism. And what you do and do not do ultimately feeds into what harvest is as a church. That, that speaks to the second reality about a body, is that it's all interconnected. What you and I do is irreversibly linked to what other, the other people are doing. You can't do something or not do something and not leave an effect on the whole body. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. I sat outside in the lobby this morning for a while on purpose. I don't know if the greeters knew I was there because I was quiet as a mouse. But I was watching. And I was trying to see how good are our greeters out there? How good a job are they doing? How effective is it? And I was happy to see that they're doing a pretty good job. I got to say, you know, John Lee, you're, where are you? Sitting? You're a good greeter, man. I, you were greeting other people and I felt welcomed vicariously. I was like, oh, I'm feeling more invited every time he opens his mouth and opens that door. So we've got some good people out front saying hello formally to everyone who walks in. But, you know, the interesting thing is it's not just the people out front that make the difference. No matter how good our greeters are in the lobby, no one will ever come to think of Harvest as a genuinely welcoming church unless they're also welcomed informally by the person who's sitting six feet down on the pew from them. I know how it is. Not everybody's an extrovert. In fact, I'm finding that more and more people today are introverts. I don't know if that's an effect of the Internet or of overstimulation, but many people I meet now say, actually, I'm kind of introverted. So I get the deal. You walk in on a Sunday, you've got a lot of other thoughts in your mind. You're ticked off that you had to park so far away and walk in the cold. And, and so you're finally thawing out, sitting in that pew, and there's some person you've never met sitting six feet down. And here might be the thought process. Probably... Say hi or something, I guess. I don't know who they are, but they're not saying hi to me, and I, I don't know. I don't really feel like saying hi to them. And then really, what's the point? I'll probably sit next to someone different next week, and it's a big church, and, you know, like, I might never really talk to them. So I just focus on praying. I'll pretend I'm, like, getting ready for service and just kind of, like, you know, send out the vibe, don't talk to me, leave me alone, give me my space. Is that familiar at all? I, is it just me or is that some of you too? I mean, I know how it is. It's not always easy 
engaging other people. I know that sometimes you're walking down the stairs and you've got that, that choice to, to make. Do I walk into that crowded melee called the fellowship hall? Or do I just make a right turn and go out to the parking lot and just go home? Grab some Burger King, enjoy my family time, watch the Bears game. What do I do? Well, here's the thing. We're all connected as a body. You can say a lot of things about Harvest, but anytime anybody has an opinion or makes a statement about this church, they're really making a statement about each one of our individual choices brought together because the church is an amalgam of hundreds of lives. That's what it is. And here's the amazing thing that Paul says. If that's what the church is, then the only way it's going to ever make sense and move in one direction is if it's joined together under the same head. Do you get that? That is a powerful comparison. You know what I've noticed is that you can live without a lot of parts of your body. There were some images. I I did a search, search on Google for amputee, and it was one of the most disturbing image searches I've ever done in preparation for a PowerPoint slideshow. And um, i got to tell you, I left out about 80 images, and I only put in one. Because it was palatable and because it was um, inspiring to look at. And I'll show it to you in a moment. But I saw photos of people that literally had nothing below the belly button. They were a torso with arms walking around. I can't imagine how they functioned. There was all kinds of biological questions I had. But it was amazing. You can, you can live and have a thriving lifestyle with so much of your body removed. Look at these guys. This, this, this photo inspires me. This is a team uh, of soccer athletes from Sierra Leone. They're all um, amputees who lost body parts in the fierce civil war that raged years ago. And now they play soccer and they play vigorously. If you can see the close-up, the intensity, the rippling muscle, the, these guys are running fast. That one guy is airborne. Do you see that? He's got one leg and he's not even standing on it. That's unbelievable. And I just kept thinking, I'll bet you if our harvest guys went up against these guys, these guys, these one-legged guys would kill us in soccer. So it makes me realize you can lose parts of your body. Some of you right now are listening to me without your tonsils or your gallbladder or your appendix, aren't you? Some of you have other parts missing. And you're still here. You're still thriving. But there's one part of the body that you cannot remove and still go on living. What part is that, everybody? It's your head. I was going to show a picture of a guillotine, but I couldn't find one that was tasteful. You remove a person's head, you don't call that an amputee, you call that a corpse. There is no surviving a beheading. But here's the reality. A lot of churches today are specimens of physically fit bodies, but they're headless and dead. You know, the thing is, You could take a body, you could take Lou Ferrigno's body, and you could take my scrawny, sorry body. Chop both our heads off, it makes no difference. Both bodies are equally pathetic and useless. You don't say, look at that headless corpse, how fit it is, what abs, what pecs. All you say is it's dead, where's the head? I want to tell you right now, small church, big church, emergent church, cool goatee-wearing church versus suit and three-piece suit and tie-wearing church. It doesn't matter. That's irrelevant. It doesn't matter what the body looks like. The only thing God really is interested in is, does it have a head? Does it have a head? 
And that's a question that has been keeping me up at night for a couple weeks now. Last night, I just couldn't sleep. I kept thinking about harvest. Do we really have Christ as our head? What does that mean to us practically? And it's something I'm still praying through and chewing on. I'm inviting you to think through that. Because I bet you we could talk right now in the pews for an hour about our different opinions about this church and about church in general. I know I've talked with some of you for hours about that. And frankly, can I just intimate to you, I'm sick of talking about the church. I'm tired of opinions and strategies and best practices. Really, I I think the most prevailing question for us today as a church is do we have a head and is it Jesus Christ? Is that our head? Let me give you a second facet of this passage. He says then, Jesus is the beginning. It's really important. Jesus is the beginning. Pastor Matt and I have been reading a book lately um, called Jim and Casper Go to Church. There's a lot of things I hate about this book. It's really annoying at parts. I don't really get the feeling I'd like to share a cup of coffee with the guys who wrote it. I think they're in some ways kind of irritating people. That's just my subjective opinion. Okay? I don't like them. But I like what they wrote. And there's a lot of nuggets in there that just punch me in the face. Like, push, push. I don't like these guys. Push. And, you know, so it's kind of that, that sort of an experience. But there's one question that Casper, the atheist. So it's Jim and Casper, a guy named Jim Henderson, and a, uh, who's a Christian, a former pastor, and an atheist named Matt Casper, who Jim hired to go to church with him. He paid this guy a bunch of money, and he took him all over the country over like a two-month period, I think, visiting all these significant evangelical churches in America. Saddleback, Willow Creek, Imago Dei, Mars Hill. They they ran the gamut all over the country. Southern Bible Belt churches, Midwestern hip-hop urban churches, that whole thing. And afterwards, he would always ask the atheists, what did you think? What were your impressions? And after one particularly glamorous production at a megachurch, which will remain nameless, Casper the Atheist asked a very haunting question, which I've reprinted here. He looked at the whole thing, fog machines, U2 songs, all that stuff. He he just simply said, is this really what Jesus told you guys to do? And he was incredulous. And as I read, at first, the the question kind of offended me, like, quiet, you atheist, what are you talking about? You don't know the church. But, you know, the thing was, the more I thought about it, I thought, where do we get this idea of worship service, this thing we're doing right now? You individual, independent, adult, free people choosing to sit in this room on uncomfortable wooden chairs listening to me for what we hope is under 40 minutes. What is this? Where does this come from? Do you realize that the modern evangelical worship service on a Sunday is not something prescribed verbatim in the Bible, but it's really a synthesis. It's a collection of practices which we've gleaned from the Bible, which believe honor God and bring us closer to him. It has faint echoes of temple worship in Jerusalem, yes. But the truth is what we do on Sundays cannot possibly stand as the main activity of the church. Because if that's the case... This seems somehow very incongruous with the person that Jesus Christ was. If this is the main centerpiece of what we are and do as a church, then to the outsider, it truly does make very little sense. Is this it? Is this really what Jesus told you guys to do? Sing, listen, pray, go home. That's the beginning. 
and even the forms we take, it's important that we question it because here's really what I think this atheist was wrestling with. It's the question which Paul really asks through his statement. Is Jesus the beginning of the church? And by beginning, really meaning the creative spark, the initiating being. The one out of whom everything flows. I'm not suggesting we should stop doing Sundays. But everything in the church should be passed through the filter of, is this really what Jesus told us to do? Here's a question that kept me up last night. I'm kind of reviewing this thing we do every Sunday online. It's this thing called Planning Center Online. I'm looking at the minute-by-minute schedule of this worship service. I said, Jesus, if, if you're pastor of this church... Is, I mean, is this what you do in 2008? When you were alive on the earth 2,000 years ago, is the church in America today what you had in mind? Is this what you pictured for your bride? Is there anything missing? Have we somehow historically latched on to practices that have really nothing to do with you? Here's another way of asking it. Does Harvest Community Church look the way it would look? If Jesus of Nazareth were our senior pastor. Ouch. I got to stay up at night thinking about that one because I'm in the crosshairs there. And so are the other pastors and the elders of the church. But so are you. Aren't you? Because we do a lot of things without thinking. I mean, every Sunday you might write a check because you believe that it is an act of faithfulness to God. But in that act of transferring funds from your account to that of a church, is Jesus the beginning of that process? Is he the magnetic being that pulls you forward to do that very thing? Uh, Here's another one. Why do you pray before a meal? Do you know I'm convinced that I'll get indigestion if I don't pray before a meal? I, I sometimes think I pray just as a formality. You know, just like you often see Catholics, the sign of the cross real quick. And I think evangelical prayer is not that much different. Why do we do what we do? And is Jesus Christ truly the beginning of it all? Is this church what Jesus had in mind when he called us together to become a family? Do you understand that question? Is he really the beginning? Here's what I think. Mark's success as a church. Let me, let me give you an eye-opening statistic. In the Chicago area, we've got 44 Best Buy stores. We've got 197 Blockbuster stores. And this seems low to me, but we've got 330. I, I almost want to say only. We have 330 McDonald's restaurants in the metro Chicago area. Take a look at that, and I want you to think about this. How much have those retail outlets impacted your lifestyle. Let me give you an illustration I've I've given before. My kids, when they were little, were playing, imitating this. I'm daddy. I'm going to Blockbuster. Like, man, is it the only time you see me leaving the house? What about going to church, you little punk? I'm being very transparent here. I hope I didn't stumble you. But, you know, Blockbuster has become a big part of my life. I didn't want to put Costco because I didn't want to seem like I was singling out anybody in particular. But you know, how many Costco's are there in the metro Chicago area? How many Walmart's? You name your favorite retail outlet. Think about what an important part of your life that's become. Some of you know the cashiers by first name. You know the hours of operation even on holidays. You know the number for the pharmacy by heart. I mean, 
Retail has really touched our lives, but look at the numbers. Best Buy has made its presence known all over Chicagoland with 44 stinking stores. You say Best Buy, only the Amish people who've moved here recently don't know what that is, right? Even they probably know. Think about it. And yet at the same metro Chicago area, we have over 5,000 churches. Over 5,000 churches. Let that sink in for a second as you think about this. Have 5,000 churches made as big a splash in the puddle of Chicagoland as 44 Best Buy stores? Has the name of Jesus Christ become a household word the way Best Buy and Blockbuster have? You know, it's actually Blockbuster video, but like Madonna, it only needs one name to be recognized. That is how clear it is. And when you go to one Blockbuster, don't you pretty much know how it works? Previously viewed items here, games here, periphery of the stores, new releases. That's pretty much the way it works, isn't it? You go to one Blockbuster, you've been to them all. You go to one McDonald's, you've been to them all. Why is it then that you can go from church to church and it's so hard to discern are all these disparate, different organizations part of the same movement? Subject to the same master, answering to the same Lord. Why is it so hard to see that? When you talk about multi-site emergent, mega church, you know, there are the, all these Christian rock star pastors who have millionaire status and have perfectly you know, done hair, look like movie stars. And, you know, this is a church in America today. When you have that much difference in the way it looks, it's dizzying for anybody coming in from the outside to figure out, is this all one body. If people came to this church and then they went to the church next door, could they say they have the same mission? It's pretty much the same business model. They have the same goal, the same vision. Or is it, it's just another brand that they're trying to push forward? You know what to me is the measure of success and health in a church? Is if people who've never been to our church before sit among us for a month, they look carefully at what we do, And then they look at Jesus Christ and what he's spoken of in in the word of God and say, oh, I get it now. It makes sense. Here's Jesus whom everyone likes. Who doesn't like Jesus? Even Gandhi loved Jesus. Jesus is cool. Jesus is loving. He's friendly. He's noble. He's appropriately strong and daring. Very few people, even atheists, have a personal bone to pick with Jesus. They love elevating him as one of the great teachers that has tried to bless humanity. It's the church that trips people up. And imagine if people could say, I look at Jesus, and then I look at Harvest Community Church, and it all makes sense to me now. This is the church that Jesus would want. What we do and who we are reveals and reflects Jesus of Nazareth, this winsome, beautiful being. Here's the thing, okay? If a person is not a follower of Jesus and they come into this building and they hear Jesus is love and they see your curmudgeonly face scowling ahead and not smiling, I guarantee you that will reflect on what they think of Jesus. They will say either his body is schizophrenic or Jesus is a sham. And I don't say that as a rebuke. I'm saying, listen, isn't that exactly what you thought when you first walked in here? Look, I try to smile. I try to be funny in my sermons. I try to keep you awake. But you're not here because of me. If you are, that won't last, I promise you. Okay? 
You're here because somewhere along the way, despite first impressions that might have been a little rocky, somebody or a couple people made a personal difference in your life. They became the church to you in those first couple days here. Some of you recent newcomers, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you walk in a room full of 200 people with coffee cups shouting at the top of their voices. It's overwhelming. You don't, you don't get to know the whole church, but there's always a couple people who zero in on you and say, you know what, I'm going to talk to you for like 10 minutes. I'm going to give you the gift of my time. And they make you really feel welcomed. At the very least, they don't make you feel like a weirdo because you're sitting there and no one's talking to you. Here's someone talking to me. And that made a difference. For that day, they were Harvest Community Church to you. They probably had a great deal to do with what you thought of the whole church and why you kept coming back. And that's what I'm trying to get at. This whole church, really collectively all of us making individual choices, are called to reveal Jesus Christ to other people. And so I'm going to give you a pointed question, and I don't want anyone to daydream or dodge this one. Everyone just look right at me. If you were the only person left in our church... Who could represent Jesus Christ to the world? Are you doing it? And is that your intention as a member of this church? If you were the only person, or or here's another interesting way to ask it. If we had to base our entire opinion of harvest and of Jesus Christ on you, how would we fare? Because the truth is, some of us have settled on a real comfortable equilibrium here. We've kind of you know, etched out our pew. I mean, some of you, it's interesting. I can count on you being in the exact same pew every single Sunday. I almost thought about asking for a donation and putting a plaque with your family name on the pew like they did in the 1700s just so you could keep your seat. It, it, you guys, some of you have really, and I'm, I'm not saying this in a cruel spirit at all. I, I'm saying this to, to engage with you. You have carved out an identity, a, a sort of, you're treading water nicely, and nobody's bothering you too much, you're giving enough, you're okay with where you are. And the thing is, you would never ever poke your head up and say, I am the model citizen of this community. I am not the person I want you to put up as a poster child for Harvest Community Church. I kind of like where I am right now, don't make me the sole representative. But the truth is, for a lot of people in the world, that is exactly who you are, whether you ask for that position or not. Somehow your lifestyle, your choices, have to reflect Jesus Christ. The way you manage your money, the way you raise your children, the way you pursue romantic relationships, the way you groom and present yourself to the world, and all these little choices, even the way you drive, Holy Spirit's convicting me. Everything we do, whether we ask for it or not, we stand together as often the sole representative of Jesus Christ to the watching world. If he is not truly your head and my head, the beginning of all things, the first place in everything, then we will misrepresent him and we will settle at an equilibrium that is inappropriate for anyone who names Jesus as their Savior. And I'm going to ask you this. Does Jesus have the first place in everything? I don't see any qualifiers in this passage that says that challenge is only for the super-Christians. It is the beginning place, the starting point of followership of Jesus Christ, is that he doesn't enjoy being second place in anything, and because it's not good for our lives that he should be second in anything. 
Imagine what difference it would make if you just decided in every area of your life, Jesus, if you would be the first person, the first being. And what do I mean by that? He gets first dibs. He gets first say. He gets first crack. He gets first portion. He gets first serving. He gets first in everything. If he got the first word in edgewise, if he got the first perspective on your attitude, imagine what a difference it would make in the way you experience everything in life. Those unmet longings that have been burning a hole in your stomach, giving you ulcers. Imagine if Jesus could be first in that area of your life truly right now. First in hope. First in comfort. First in strengthening. First in obedience. Imagine what a difference it would make if you actually had the courage to say, Jesus, what would it look like, honestly, if you were the first priority in my finances? Now, can you indulge me for one second before we go into communion? I never preach about money here, do I? Can we just be fair? I, I very rarely preach about giving. So indulge me for one minute. i got to tell you something. We are not bearing the financial burden in this church equally. We celebrate together when there's a giving campaign and the 20000 comes in for the nursing school here or there. But I've got to tell you, it's five or six people, by and large, writing the checks for those big things. There's a very small percentage. In fact, I can count the families and individuals on the fingers of two, hand, or of two hands that are really bearing the lion's share of financial burden for our whole church. And I know that the economy is going south right now, but our inequitable sharing of this burden predates the economic downturn. What I'm saying is our giving was unequal long before the economy went poop on us. And that's a serious issue. And and I think the truth is that it's because we have not given Jesus first place in that area of our lives. And don't presume I'm saying this from a position of superiority. You know, I got to tell you, we're tithing, but Jeannie and I have been walking through our budget with a fine-tooth comb, and we're going through it again. Because I realize there's room to grow, even for us. And the question is not, can we give more? That's not the point. The question is, does my financial arrangement reveal that Jesus Christ has the first place? Does it really reveal that Jesus has the first place? I guarantee you, Jesus will be exceedingly important on the day of judgment. You will so want to be numbered among his. But is he important to you now? Please understand that this is not a ploy to get more money out of this congregation. You have proven yourselves generally faithful. We're not starving to death. We're doing okay. But it's about the room to grow in us. It's about Jesus being truly seated on the throne of this church. And that's just one template that you can follow. I've given you this issue of giving as an example of how we can think about whether we've truly given Jesus the first place in every area of our lives. Some of you single folks are willing to sacrifice your standards just to not be alone. And I don't believe Jesus is first place in that perspective. And there's so many other examples I could give. I'm not going to give them. I'm going to trust that as you take this challenge home with you, courageously and prayerfully, God will allow you in your reflection to see where he is not first and where he needs to be in first place in your life. If you're married, I encourage you to pray through that as a couple. Because it's not enough for one spouse to go, I think we need to give God more of our finances. And the other goes, uh-huh. that, that's going to cause a fight. I don't want fights. What I want is two people 
who claim Jesus as Lord to look at each other and say, honestly, does this look to us, the way we're raising our kids, the way we're doing everything, does it look like Jesus is first in our lives? And if the answer is no, then ask him how that can be repaired. I believe he'll tell you. And if we all engage in that this year, then collectively as a church, I believe we will enter 2009 so strengthened as a body, so much healthier as a family. Now, as I wrap that up, I've got to tell you, it's probably going to be the case that some will go home and forget this message, but I want to encourage you not to do that. When you go home today, see if you can't carve out at least one hour of your evening or afternoon for a little bit of reflection while the thought and the challenge is fresh. Does Jesus truly have first place in everything? If, if that is the case, then we will soar with him in the next year, and Jesus will do some amazing things with this church. I want to ask if uh, Pastor Frank and, uh, and let's see, uh, let's have... Uh, Chris and Young, come up just for a moment and get the elements ready here. And here's a spirit in which I like us to take communion today. I've spoken the entire message not to just you as individuals, but to all of us as a church. And that's the way we're going to take communion today. Communion is usually a very personal and individual thing that we do. But here's how I'd like us to be thinking about it this morning. Jesus said at the Last Supper one simple thing to lay the foundation for communion. He said, remember me. Do you you recall that? He simply said, remember me. I thought, what a prophetic word that was. Because if ever the Christian world was guilty of anything on a regular basis, it is forgetting Jesus. Which is an odd thing, because we're in the Jesus business. But Jesus is so often the forgotten one, at the parties thrown in his honor. And so I think we will take communion this morning, challenged by this idea, that we do this today to remember Jesus, to affirm together as a church that he will not be left out on the fringes of what we do, but he is to be our head over this body. He is to be the beginning, the source of everything we choose to do as a church. And he is to be the first place in everything in our lives. I think that's what it means to remember him. Not simply to remember the gruesome act of crucifixion and how that atoned for us individually, but to make sure he remains then enthroned on the place that he purchased at so high a price for us. He is not just Savior, but he is Lord. And that is why we take communion, to remember both of those elements of what Jesus is to us. He saved us through the broken body and the shed blood. But he purchased for himself the place of dominion over everything and everyone so that he should be first and head and supreme over all things. And we together today will remember that. And I want to ask you as you take the elements to hold on to them until everybody's been served. And as we take them, we will use that occasion to rededicate this church to Jesus Christ, who really should have the glory and all the authority and all the firsts in this collection of believers. Amen.
Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.